Welcome back to our 2017 Educational Webinar Series. This month we have five complimentary webinars that will take a look at issues related to access in healthcare. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, a hospital network, a healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or a skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Today we are so pleased to have Steve Wilder, President and CEO of Sorensen Wilder & Associates. Sorensen Wilder & Associates is a safety and security consulting group comprised of dedicated professionals with extensive experience in healthcare, educational, governmental, manufacturing, retailing, and the public safety sector. Today they have become the recognized industry leader in healthcare workplace violence prevention programs and the healthcare active shooter preparedness programs in the United States. Steve Wilder has spent the last 32 years in healthcare safety, security, and risk management. He has provided consultation services to hundreds of clients, including hospitals, long-term care, home care agencies, clinics, physician practices, and pre-hospital EMS services. In his corporate healthcare career, Steve served as a hospital director of risk management, as corporate director of risk management for a long-term care corporation, and as corporate director for safety and security for a healthcare system with 10 hospitals and 15 long-term care facilities. Steve has performed security vulnerability assessments and mock OSHA audits at over 200 healthcare facilities across the United States, and has trained thousands of workers in, health, in workplace safety and security. An experienced trial expert, Steve has consulted for law firms and insurance companies on issues of healthcare safety, security, risk management, aggression management, and workplace violence. He also has written numerous articles for healthcare magazines and trade journals. He and his partner, Chris Sorensen, are co-authors of the book, The Essentials of Aggression Management in Healthcare, From Talk, Talk Down to Take Down. Steve also writes a monthly safety column for the Long-Term Care Living magazine. A copy of the handout of the presentation is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel and they will be addressed at the end of the presentation. Your Paycom CEU certificate will be emailed automatically to you from Paycom following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. Check their website for details. Take it away, Steve. Well, thanks, Dr. Brooks. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome. And I'm going to say good morning because I'm sitting here in the suburbs of Chile, Chicago. So good morning, and thanks for letting me be a part of your day. I was very excited when Dr. Brooks reached out and, and asked me to, to be a part of this program. I've uh, been familiar with First Healthcare Compliance for some time now, uh, and to have the opportunity to work with this group, just it was just an absolute thrill. So Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, as I tell all the groups that I do active shooter training for around the country, you know, the number one rule of public speaking is you never start a program with an apology. But I'm afraid I really have to in this case because I am humbly sorry that we've got to waste time talking about a subject like this in an environment like ours. We are dedicated to caring. Our mission is caring and compassion. And yet we have to sit here and talk about how do we prevent or how do we respond when the unthinkable happens? So for that, I do apologize, but this is the world we live in, 
and we have to move it forward and be prepared for just about anything we face, no different than anything else in our emergency operation plan. That being said, you will hear me as we go through the time together this morning, you're going to hear me talk about your emergency operation plan a little bit. You are required to have a written emergency operation plan. It's an OSHA requirement, it's a regulatory compliant or regulatory requirement, it's a compliance requirement. And typically for every healthcare facility that I work with, when I look at their EOP, it's got all the different tabs or all the different drop-down menus, and they're all pretty much the same. And when we start talking about active shooter planning, I want you to realize that this is another part of your emergency operation plan. It's another part of it the same as your fire emergency plan is, your utility failure plan is, your bloodborne pathogen plan is. This is just a new threat. It's the new kid on the block, if you will, and it's something that everybody's working to get prepared for. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. You've got a fire plan, but none of you are planning a fire today, but we still have to be ready. You know, there's a lot of different definitions out there of what an active shooter is and is not, and I use this very simple definition. A person or persons whose activity is immediately causing death or serious bodily injury. The activity is not contained and there is an immediate risk of death and serious injury to potential victims. Now, I was doing this conference out on the East Coast not too long ago, and I had one individual tell me, well, Steve, I think you have to technically have four people as victims. And no, you don't. There is no requirement under the Department of Homeland Security's definition, under the OSHA definition, uh, under any definition of an active shooter for minimum casualties. And I mean, think about it in terms of common sense for a minute. If I walk in and I have a handgun or a long gun in my possession, and I fire a couple rounds into the ceiling. Am I not an active shooter at that point? Nobody's being shot at per se, but I am still armed with a firearm and I am shooting that firearm inside the building. So yes, I am an active shooter. So realize that uh, there's a lot of definitions out there, but we all agree on one thing and that's what it is not. It is not a security event. It is not a code gray or a code silver or a code chartreuse, or a code rainbow, or let's blow up all these ridiculous color codes and go back to a plain English system. I have to be careful, I'm very biased about this, but I have seen a near catastrophic outcome where an individual who worked in two different healthcare facilities confused a code gray and a code silver, thinking that a code silver was an elopement when it was actually an armed intruder, and nearly walked into an environment where an armed intruder was standing with a handgun. So I'm not a fan of color codes. There's no regulatory requirements to my knowledge that says we have to have them. The National Incident Management System says we should be using plain English. And I would uh, beg you to consider redoing your emergency operation plans and let's put everything in plain English so we avoid any type of miscommunications. It's not a security event. It's not a Mr. Strong. It's not a uh, uh, Dr. Armstrong or whatever type of emergency situation or emergency message you put over the PA system. It's not a person with a weapon. It's not a hostage event. This is a life-threatening situation. When you have that active shooter and they are pulling the trigger, the goal is to get people away, not to bring people into that environment. One of the first things, friends, as an industry that we've got to get away from is this prevailing attitude that says it won't happen here. And I got to tell you, you know, some people say I'm lucky. I say no, I'm blessed. I get to work with healthcare professionals and healthcare corporations and systems around the country. And one of the commonalities that I hear is uh, the biggest commonality, first of all, is this "it won't happen here" attitude. Uh, 
but I see it in two different environments. I see it in the small rural communities where everybody knows everybody and everybody thinks, ah, nothing bad will ever happen here. And I've got so many cases I can show you to document to prove that that is just not true. The other is the healthcare facilities that are in the upscale communities where, you know, these are multi-million dollar homes. Nothing's going to happen around here. You, most people can't afford to be in this area. This is an upscale area. It doesn't matter, friends. These events can happen anywhere. You know, there's no better example of that than this incident in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania in October of 2006 when a freak walked into that little one-room Amish schoolhouse that you see on your screen right now, lined 10 little girls up against the wall and started shooting all of them with no provocation, no reason, no motive, just wanted to shoot them. And if it can happen in that innocent environment to what, from my own experiences, have proven to be the most peaceful, forgiving culture on earth, if it can happen in that little one-room Amish schoolhouse, it can happen anywhere. And that includes any of your respective facilities, offices, practices, whatever industry or whatever fragment of our industry you might represent today. We can't imagine it happening in the schools, but we've certainly got documented cases. Uh, gentlemen that I've had the privilege now of becoming very good friends with and have worked with a number of times over the last few years, gentleman by the name of Frank DeAngelis, who was the principal at Columbine High School uh, when the mass shootings there occurred on April 20th of 1999. Nobody would ever thought in an upscale community like Littleton, Colorado, that this was possible. We're all familiar with Sandy Hook uh, when the shootings occurred there in December of 2012 uh, and, and the catastrophic results there. But we don't always hear about them. A lot of times they're more localized. We don't hear about it. We didn't hear when two people were, were murdered uh, in a murder-suicide at a senior citizen center in, in California. We didn't hear about that in the Chicago area because two people dead in California does not sell news in Chicago. But it's happening all the time, and it's happening across all industry lines uh, and all aspects of healthcare as well. Toledo, Ohio, April of 2009, when the uh, director of activities in a long-term care facility was held hostage by her estranged husband. December of 2015, authorities arrest and kill, or excuse me, authorities arrested the ex-husband of a nurse uh, at a skilled nursing facility killed in the parking lot by her ex-husband. A uh, situation I am intimately familiar with, and uh, having worked with not the facility but with their insurance company. March 29, 2009 in Carthage, North Carolina, where an individual walked in with the intent of shooting and killing his soon-to-be ex-wife. And when he couldn't get to her because she was in a locked unit, he went on a killing spree and ended up killing seven residents and one employee for no reason other than being angry. So you see a couple of commonalities there right off the bat. I think the strongest one is domestic violence. And that's one of the reasons I say I don't care if you're a small rural facility or a large inner city facility or a facility surrounded by the most upscale neighborhoods. You're vulnerable. Every one of you have a commonality, and that is that you have employees who have things going on in their lives that you know nothing about. And at any given point in time, that spouse who's been served divorce papers, that spouse who finds out that his partner is having an extramarital affair, that person who has just been dumped, that ex-parent, that, that non-custodial parent who's fighting for custody, any point in time these people can come walking through the front door with a score to settle and we had no idea it was happening or that it was going to happen until we're in the middle of an event. 
So please don't allow yourselves or anyone in, in your respective facilities or communities to think that it won't happen to you. We also like to think we know how people are going to respond when there's a disaster situation, but unfortunately we know that's not true. Now you can see the, in the illustration on your screen the picture on the left, uh, uh, Sully Sullenberg's flight, and I think I'm probably one of the few people in America who have not seen that movie yet. I've sat down twice to watch it at home and gotten interrupted both times. But I have done a lot of studying in terms of how people respond to emergency situations, and I've, I've read the uh, transcripts from some of the flight attendants involved in this flight. And imagine being on that flight, and I fly all the time, and I know many of you travel a lot as well. I'm used to that obnoxious hum of the jet engines as we're, as we're shooting across the country. Imagine, though, being in that jet, the obnoxious sound of that jet engine humming constantly is there, but then all of a sudden it's gone. And now all you have is silence. And that water is getting closer and closer and closer. You're not sure what's going to happen. Amazingly, reading the, the transcripts of the, of the uh, flight attendants, most of the people on this flight remained very calm, which is amazing. But when it landed, people just sat there, stunned. We would probably think that people would be in a panic, having anxiety, having a reaction. Most people just sat there with a blank look on their face, not sure what to do until the flight attendants started giving them directions. We all like to think we know how we're going to respond in a situation, but the reality is it will never be the way you think it's going to be, and you will never respond the way you think you're going to. We may also have superstars around us who we think will respond and, and will provide the leadership that we expect them to. But without proper training and rehearsal, I promise you they're not going to. People do not react to disasters the way we think they will ourselves included. Some of the reasons people fail to respond, first of all, there's that subconscious need for normalcy. People do well in normal environment. They're comfortable. They're within, you know, they're inside the box, as we say. But when things go awry, when the walls of the box are broken down and suddenly they're outside of their comfort zone, they need that normalcy that goes with everyday life. A lot of people have an overwhelming sense of denial. They can't accept this. They can't understand. They're unable to comprehend the scope of the event. Some people have that optimistic bias that they think that they, they can, can control the situation themselves. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but as we talk about active shooters, please realize you know, we do a lot of training with workplace violence and dealing with aggressive behavior. You cannot talk down an active shooter. Don't ever think that that is part of your training, please. Unfortunately, we still work with healthcare professionals, and we still identify them that have uh, a very poor safety culture. It gets lip service, but at the end of the day, employers are not well trained. We're not doing drills the way we should be doing. We're doing drills to meet regulatory compliance requirements, not to prepare our people. There's very poor or little or no planning or preparedness. Training programs are nothing more than... Oh, and I have to be careful because I'm going to go off on a tangent here. I feel it happening. Video-based training is not training. Sitting your people down once a year and saying, you've got to watch these six videos this year as part of our safety program, that's not training, friends. You know, from a trainer's perspective, we educate the mind and we train the hands. We educate their minds. Those videos are great for educating their minds. But if you don't train their hands how to perform, the tasks that your plan says they have to do, they're going to fail. And I'm telling you that right up front. 
their minds know what to do, but if their hands don't know how to do it, they're going to fail, and the outcomes are going to be catastrophic. So please, if you're looking at uh, your training program and you think that you're doing okay because you're having your people watch videos, scratch it and start over. Videos are great. Don't misunderstand me. But you have to have the psychomotor side of it as well. Your people have to be able to perform the tasks with their hands. They have to know how to barricade walls. They have to know how to, how to do all the things that your plan says to do if there's an active shooter. And if you don't practice it and train their hands how to perform those tasks, they're not going to be able to do it under stressful conditions. When we talk about putting together our active shooter program, there's five steps in the process. Conduct a security vulnerability assessment. Develop an active shooter emergency response plan. Develop an active shooter training program based on that plan. We'll talk about that in a moment. Train your staff how to respond and plan for recovery. Let's look at those. First of all, the security vulnerability assessment, or the SVA as we call it. A vulnerability assessment, everybody's familiar with the risk assessments or a threat assessment. An SVA is a focused assessment that looks at your facility security. I'm not talking security in terms of uniform security people. They're a critical and involved component. But when we talk about facility security, it goes much farther than just the uniform security staff. Your SVA answers several key questions. First of all, from what and from whom? Should the healthcare facility be protecting itself? In other words, what are the threats that are out there that could put our people, whether it's employees, patients, residents, physicians, vendors, it doesn't matter. What are the threats that are out there that could put them in harm's way? If you're not doing an SVA, you're not identifying these things. Secondly, looking at our own programs, what are the chinks in the armor in our present day programs that could allow an event to occur. In other words, where are the vulnerabilities? And thirdly, what are the likely consequences in the event that these vulnerabilities are ever recognized and an event occurs? In other words, what are the risks? Think of risks, and I'm a hospital risk manager by background, think of risks as outcomes. If I smoke cigarettes, I risk lung cancer. If I don't wear a seatbelt when I'm in my car, I risk serious injury if I'm in an accident. So think of risks as outcomes. So when we're talking about that vulnerability assessment, we want to identify what are the risks, what are the likely outcomes, those adverse outcomes, in the event these vulnerabilities, these chinks in the armors are recognized and that threat that we talked about is actually able to commit and act uh, within the confines of our campus. And once we answer those questions, then we can take steps to minimize the vulnerability or to fix those chinks in the armor. If you're not using a systematic or systematized, excuse me, approach to doing this, uh, you're really using a hit and miss, which is the alternative, and that, that to me in today's society is not an acceptable alternative. After we've done our SVA, we've identified our vulnerabilities, and we've put together some plans for improvement, and we've made some fixes to minimize or to fix those chinks in the armor, if you will. Now we can go on to step two, and that is to develop our active shooter plan. And again, we want our active shooter plan to be realistic to the threat. And, and I get calls every week asking, you know, do we sell active shooter plan templates? And the answer is no. I don't like those templates. 
I don't like anything that treats every one of your practices, every one of your hospitals, every one of your long-term care communities as being alike. Every one of you are unique in your own right. You need a plan that is realistic to the threat and that is specific to your respective environment. Now, realize when you're writing your plan, when that shooter walks through the door, they may be looking for one specific person, as I talked about earlier in that ex-husband, ex-wife situation. They may be looking for a high body casualty count. You know, I think back to the uh, uh, shootings in Orlando uh, not too very long ago, or the shootings in San Bernardino a year and a half ago. And, and please realize that was an outpatient healthcare facility in San Bernardino where those shootings occurred. This, is made, this plan is going to be very unique from others in your EOP. Your fire plan, you've got your code red team that's going to be responding. Your cardiac arrest or patient uh, care plan, you've got a code blue team that's going to be responding. You're not going to have any type of a team responding when you've got an active shooter. As much as I hate the term, this really becomes every man, every woman for him or herself. So there's not going to be help responding. You've got to make sure your staff are prepared and your staff are trained. And I'm telling you right up front, it's going to be chaotic. All the planning, all the training in the world, this is still going to be a very chaotic event. And I've worked with a number of, of uh, places now, both healthcare and non-healthcare, that have had active shooter events. And not one of them has yet to tell me, it was amazing, Steve, everybody was so calm. No, this is chaotic. And at the end of the day, it may be just you or you and a colleague to get through this alive. No better example than that, hospitals, long-term care. Think about your staffing patterns on the midnight shift. You just don't have people coming out of the woodwork to help on the midnight shift like you do in the daytime. So you're going to be trying to do as much as you can with minimal staffing. Um, and yeah, it may just be you and a colleague to get through this alive. We want to make sure we develop a plan Yes, I want it focused on your patients. Yes, I want it focused on your residents. But I also want it to take your employees and keep them in mind as well. Right? Your plan focuses on either escaping, hiding, or fighting. At the end of the day, the plan is to survive. And remember, as I told Dr. Brooks when we talked the other day, denial is a river in Egypt. Don't think of it as anything else. Denying that the incident is going to happen there has no value when we talk about preparing our people to survive. And you'll notice that everything I've said talks about survival. I'm realistic. There is nothing out there that is going to prevent this from happening. As a risk manager, exposure avoidance is the first form of managing risk that I always prefer. If I can prevent it from happening, I don't have to deal with a loss. But with you, when you think about all the people walking through our doors, more often than not, we don't realize that we've got an active shooter in the building until we hear shots fired, we smell gunpowder, we hear people screaming, we see the stampede of people running. That's the only time that we really realize. By then, it's too late. So focusing on trying to prevent it from happening Focus on survival, friends, because that's really got to be where our efforts go. We want to develop a plan that has that survival mindset. And one of the things that you can do in your plan to help talk about where your exits are at, where valuable hiding places are at, where barriers can be uh, put up, 
Where are there weapons of opportunity if I have to protect myself? And, and remember, you know, the healthcare industry is so challenging when we have to deal with this. You know, I always said as a, as a hospital risk manager, the only difference between the hospital and the hotel is the hotel gives you a lock on your door. Hospitals, long-term care, skilled, we don't get that privilege. Our patients, our residents, their doors don't lock. So when we talk about having to protect them, it's going to be much harder to try to protect them than it is across other industry lines where I can lock doors uh, and, and secure hallways and everything else. Healthcare is just so challenging. Then we want to, after we've got a good plan developed, we develop our training program. Now our training program, and again, I'm going to tell you, I don't like package training programs because again, if the training program isn't written consistent with your plan, why are you even using it? Your plan says to do one thing. You sure don't want a training program that says to do something else because that disconnect is going to get people hurt uh, and it's certainly going to keep plaintiff's attorneys working. We want an active shooter training program that is developed specific to what your plan says to do so that you've got a plan that says to do this, you've got a training program that says to do the same thing, and your people are prepared at the end of the day. We take a four-step approach to training. We start with awareness level training. That's just didactic level training. People in a classroom, in a conference room, whatever the case might be, being made aware of the risk, being made aware of what we as, a, as a, an industry and what we as an individual healthcare system or facility are doing to prepare for the risk. We talk about preparedness. That's where we start getting them acclimated. This is what our plan says to do. Walking them through the plan, giving them the opportunity to ask questions about the plan. Then we can go into drills and exercises. And when we talk about drills and exercises, we talk about three different types. A tabletop exercise, which is really designed to do nothing more than test our plan, not our people. A functional exercise, which then takes our plan and breaks it down into bite-sized pieces. And then a full-scale exercise, which involves our facilities and our local police and fire and EMS and all the folks in the community who would be with us if the event actually happened. And it tests our plan to full capacity. But if I put a plan together, I do an overview training, or a preparedness level training program for my staff, and then I go right into a full-scale exercise, guys, pandemonium is going to rain and your program is going to fail. Your people aren't ready for that. We need to make sure we do the tabletop exercises, then the functional, then the full-scale. And at the end of those exercises, we have to look at them and say, where did we do well and where could we have done better? And boy, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to speak bluntly here. Sometimes this drives me crazy because all I see is you know, patting each other on the back. You know what? Save that for some other situation. We need to be realistic. We need to look in the mirror. We need to look in each other's eyes and say, we could have done better in this area or in that area. And we need to fix those because when it's the real thing, we aren't going to have time for patting each other on the back. We need to make sure our program and our training and everything is working. Don't be afraid of training. I've heard so many times, well, we don't do exercises because we don't want to scare people. Well, you know what? I fly all the time. And every time I get on a flight, I have to sit through that flight attendant's presentation that teaches me how to buckle a seatbelt again. They're not taking me through those in order to scare me from not flying. They're taking through me through those to make sure I know what to do if there ever is an emergency on the plane that I'm in. And I appreciate them for that. Because if there is an emergency, I'd much rather have some level of preparedness 
than to just sit back and not know how to take care of myself. Don't be afraid to do exercises. People know that it can happen. You know, I, years and years and years ago when I was a young hospital risk manager just starting out, and this is going back 30 plus years now, I went to my, one of the first things I mentioned, this is before hospitals had infant abduction systems in place uh, to protect the newborns. And one of the things I identified in my own hospital was that it looked like it would be pretty easy if we wanted to abduct an infant. So I went to the person who was the administrator at the time and I, I shared my concerns and I asked if we could do an infant abduction exercise. And I was flat out told no, don't you even think about it. Because the one thing we would never want is for people to think that that could happen here. Well, guess what happened, friends? We had an infant abducted a short time later. And by the grace of God, 20 minutes later, we had the infant back safe and sound, and the abductor, the police had her in custody. Next day, of course, my administrator is wanting them, well, maybe we should start doing some exercises. Guys, it can happen. Your, your patients, your, your communities, they know it can happen in your buildings. They expect you to be prepared. So don't be afraid to do exercises thinking that you're going to scare business off. If anything, you're going to send a very powerful message that says, we're being prepared. When we talk about being prepared and we talk about active shooter, you know, the Department of Homeland Security has a fantastic program called Run, Hide, Fight. And we teach Run, Hide, Fight in a lot of non-healthcare industrial settings that we work with. And we work with government, we work with retail, we work with manufacturing, and we use Run, Hide, Fight in, in so many of those. But please realize, and Department of Homeland Security has been on record for some time now saying this, Run, Hide, Fight by itself is not a program for healthcare because healthcare's challenges are so unique compared to other businesses and industries. And what we've done is we've taken Run, Hide, Fight, and we're proud of this. This, the, this particular model right here that you see in front of you, the four outs, is now uh, pretty much the national model being used uh, in the long-term care industry and it's starting to be used now in the hospital, uh, the acute care side as well. It's called the four outs. And when I talk about the four outs, as I always tell people, it's run, hide, fight on steroids. The four outs are get out, which is very similar to run, an interior and exterior evacuation. Hide out, which is hide, same as run, hide, fight. Provides protection if you can't get out. Keep out. And now think back to what I said a few minutes ago. The uniqueness of a healthcare facility, we can't lock the doors. So if we have to hide out, we have to hide our patients, we have to hide our residents, and we might be hiding our staff in the same rooms with those residents and patients, we have to figure out a way to keep the bad guy out when we don't get the privilege of a lock on the door. So this is where I say it's run, hide, fight on steroids. We've got additional steps in the healthcare facility that they don't have to take in the office environment, that they don't have to take in, in a uh, uh, business office or in, in a government office or in a manufacturing facility. They've got locks on the doors everywhere they go. We don't. And the last one that we hope we never have to use is takeout, which is fight. So the four outs, again, I say it's run, hide, fight on steroids, get out, hide out, keep out, and take out. And we will talk more on these four in a few moments. And please, I want to make very sure that training is multi-level. In the introduction, Dr. Brooks uh, eloquently said, you know, one of the, the uh, pleasures we have is working with a lot of our clients doing mock OSHA surveys. 
And if I go into any of your locations and I did a mock OSHA survey, one of the things I would ask to see is your training records, which is exactly what OSHA is going to ask for. And one of the things they're going to look at is to see that the CEOs and the vice presidents and everybody on Mahogany Row is going through the same training as every one of your staff employees, every one of your hourly employees. And one thing they don't want to hear is somebody say, well, I, I would like to have gone through that training, but I was so busy that day, I just couldn't. It's not acceptable. Training has to be multi-level to be compliant and from a practical point of view as well. Those of you who are a part of this program today who are in that senior leadership responsibility, people are looking to you for leadership. When there's a situation like this, they're looking to you for guidance, direction, and for answers. You didn't attend the program, though, because you had a lot of other stuff going on, and I understand that. But because you didn't understand the program, you don't know what your employees have been trained in. And now, all of a sudden, you're telling them to do one thing when their plan and their training is tell them to do something that is diametrically opposite to what you're telling them. Do you see where that puts them? And this is the reason that OSHA and the regulatory agencies are so aggressive in making sure that senior management participates in all the training the same as every other employee in the organization. Uh, we need to make sure that everybody is on the same page. The, the margin for error when these events occur is so small, we can't take those chances. Our goal and, I, and your plan, I would like to see it providing as many choices for people to make in the shortest possible time. Run, hide, fight provides choices. The four outs provide choices. Don't put together an action plan that says do this because you don't know what the situation is going to be. Choices are the way to go. And you know, when we talk about training, I, and again, as I said at the beginning, I'm a trainer. I, I could spend all day talking about the benefits and the value of training. When an active shooter is in your building, your training is going to pay off. I promise you up front. I've seen it with my own two eyes. But one of the things to realize that when the event first starts taking place, I don't care if you're trained or untrained, our response is going to be the same. And that is startle and fear. We're shocked that's happening and we're scared and it's okay to be scared you know in my life outside of healthcare I had the privilege of spending 35 years in the fire service as well I was a firefighter for 31 years I retired as a fire chief in 2008 and I also had the privilege of serving 25 years as adjunct faculty at the State Fire Academy at the University of Illinois I run into to the burning buildings that the rats and the cockroaches are running out of and and I always relied upon my training, which I consider the best of the best. But anybody who says they weren't scared is lying to you. Fear is a normal emotion in this type of thing. Don't be afraid of fear. That's where the commonalities end, though. Because then when I look at my trained and prepared people, yeah, they're going to have anxiety. Don't kid yourself. But to deal with the anxiety. First of all, they're going to know how to deal with anxiety because it should be part of your emergency preparedness training, how they can control their breathing, how they can keep their heart rate down, how they can keep anxiety in check. They're going to recall what they've learned. You know, our, our mind is, our brain is an incredible uh, hard drive filled with millions and millions and millions of gigabytes of information. And when an event occurs, 
it goes back and it scans that incredible hard drive, finds where it's stored, and brings it back into the forefront. And people recall what they've learned, even though they may not have been trained recently. And then they're going to be prepared and they're going to act as they've been trained. So you've put together a good plan, you've put together a good training program, you've trained your people well, and now when the event is happening, people are going to perform like we had hoped they would. But what about those untrained people, the ones that didn't attend the training, the ones that we looked the other way uh, because it was busy that day or because we didn't want to have to schedule additional sessions? Now they're there and we've got an active shooter and they're untrained and unprepared. Well, their response is going to be different. They're not going to have anxiety. They're going to have panic. They're going to be in a meltdown because they had no idea what to do. They're going to be frozen with fear. They're going to be a state of disbelief and denial. They're of no value to themselves. They're of no value to you. And they certainly can't help to maximize survivability for our residents or our patients. And they're going to stay frozen in shock and denial. You know, we can do the old... Uh, television uh, movie thing where each of us takes turns slapping them across the face, but that's Hollywood. Right? The reality is these people are going to break down. They will literally, and, and I would encourage you, go out on the, onto uh, YouTube and, and download the movie or the, the, the film Run, Hide, Fight. It's a six-minute clip, but it is so fantastic. And there's one scene in there where when an active shooter is in a building, there's a group in a conference room, and, and one young lady in there has a complete meltdown. And it's very realistic. And all she can do is squat down in a corner of the room crying because she's so scared. She has no way to contribute to her own survivability or anyone else's. And you know, gang, the one thing I want to encourage you, if it sounds like gunshots, treat it as gunshots until proven otherwise. You're sitting in your office and you hear bang, 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 and you're thinking, wow, that sounds like gunshots. Ah, it was probably somebody shooting off fireworks. Well, when was the last time somebody shot off fireworks in your ER or your ICU? Or it sounds like a car backfiring. Well, when was the last time you had a car backfire on C-Wing? Right? If it sounds like gunfire in today's world, treat it like it is until it's proven otherwise. Trust your gut. We talked briefly about the four outs, and I want to spend a couple of minutes going through those uh, as we're starting to wind down here. Uh, because I also want to have time to talk a little bit about recovery. Four outs, as you see there, you're in the middle, your choices, get out, hide out, keep out, or take out. When we talk about get out, get out is very simple. Be on the move. Move your residents, move your patients, move yourself. Get out of the danger zone. Get out of that hot zone. Get away as quickly as possible. And leave your belongings behind. You know, you don't need stuff. You need mobility. And we want to be able to move patients and residents and staff to a safe location and get them as far away from where the shooter is at as possible. Don't wait for others to agree. If you're sitting in an environment and somebody says, no, I'm scared, I'm staying here, try to encourage them to go with you. But don't stay behind just because they're not willing to move with you. You know you're going to safety. You know you're at the closest exit and you've got an opportunity to get away from the hazard the best thing to do right there. And the faster you move, the better your survivability. You know, Hollywood makes us believe that bad guys are excellent shots, but in reality, bad guys are really terrible shots. And we want to realize this. And I've got, I'm blessed, I have several retired police officers that work for me, and a couple of them are trainers, and they've sat right here in this office, and we've talked about it, trained 
law enforcement professionals who are experts with their firearms, when they are in an actual engagement, they only hit the target one out of every four or five times. Now, they'll hit it 100% of the time when it's on the wall in a shooting range, but in an actual engagement where the bad guy is shooting back, where the targets are moving away, where they're fleeing, where they're an actual moving target, where there's stress, where there's anxiety involved, the trained professionals are only hitting it one out of every four or five times. So if, if the good guys with all the training are only hitting a one out of every four or five, you can imagine what the low statistics would be for how often the bad guy actually hits. Now Hollywood makes us think, because I said the bad guy hits all the time, he can hold that big gun one-handed and he never misses, he can turn it sideways, he can hold it upside down, you know, that's great, it sells movie tickets, it sells TV advertising, but it's not reality. The reality is every step away from the bad guy's shots that we take increases our chances of survivability. So getting out is always our preferred option of choice. And once we're out, we're going to call 911. We want to call as safely as we can possibly do so. And I tell everybody, do not assume that others have called. Now, I'm a big advocate, and I don't know what your respective plans are, friends. I am a very big advocate for everybody to be able to carry their cell phone. Now, that being said, I better not catch my employees playing Candy Crush. I don't want to catch them texting with boyfriend, girlfriend, or writing home to find out what's for dinner. They're there to do a job, and we need them doing their job. But every person carrying a cell phone is a potential 911 caller. And I can tell you as a retired fire chief, the more calls to 911, the greater the degree of criticality the public safety responders take. They're going to take it seriously no matter what. But the more calls you get, the more they realize that they have a critical situation. So we want everybody calling 911. I don't want anybody assuming somebody else is called. Everybody calls. And when you call, give them the name of the shooter if you know them, a physical description if you know them, or if you've seen them, I should say, the location of the shooter, where is that person at in the building, and if you know the number and types of weapons, that's good information also, and police will appreciate knowing that. You don't need to be able to tell them the person is carrying a Glock 9mm. It doesn't matter if it's a Glock, a Smith & Wesson, if it's a automatic, a semi-automatic, a revolver. All they need to know is if it's a handgun, meaning you hold it in your hand, or is it a long gun, meaning it butts up to the shoulders. That's all they need to know. Caliber, manufacturer, none of that matters. The second step in our four step, if we can't get out, we go to plan B, hideout. Hideout, we want to get into a room where we can protect ourselves. We want to turn off lights. We want to close the blinds. Our goal here is to make sure that it looks like an unoccupied area. You know, the minute the first shot is fired, people are calling 911. The bad guy knows this, and he knows when the police arrive that they're going to take him out. So he's moving quickly, looking for as many what we call targets of opportunity as possible. If he comes across what appears to be an unoccupied area, he's probably not going to take time to go in and search it to see if there's somebody hiding in there. He's going to keep moving because he knows the police are coming. By now, he may even hear those sirens getting closer, and he knows his time is limited. So we want to make the area look as unoccupied as possible. We want to turn off lights, close the blinds, be as quiet as we can. If there's locks on the doors, certainly lock the doors. If the door has a window or curtains, close them. 
make it look as unoccupied and don't make it easy for the bad guy to see in there and know that there are people in there. As I said a minute ago, we may have to barricade the doors. And this is the part when we talk about keep out, you know, the bullet points in there are almost identical to what we just saw. But when we talk about keep out, I've got to think about the rooms that I can't lock the door. How am I going to keep that bad guy out of here? Well, we've still got some things we can work with. If I'm in a patient room, there's no reason I can't take that patient out of the bed, slide that bed against the door, lock the wheels, and now I've just put a 400-pound barrier against that door. I've got other furniture I can stack on top of the bed. I'm adding a lot of weight so that the door is not going to be able to be pushed open. Now, that being said, there's nothing to say the bad guy couldn't push it open. But when he gets to that door and it's barricaded closed, he's going to make a quick decision. Do I waste time trying to push the door open, or do I keep moving looking for more targets of opportunity because those sirens are getting closer? Remember, police are going to be there usually in three to five minutes. He doesn't have a lot of time. The more we can do to barricade those doors with heavy furniture or objects, the better off we are. I'm in a room where I don't have a lot of heavy furniture. Okay, great. Let's use a lot of smaller stuff. And instead of using weight to block the door, I'll pile a lot of stuff up in front of it and create a wall of obstruction where now instead of him having to try to push a door against something heavy, he's not able to open the door because there's this huge wall of obstruction that he's got to try to come through that is, again, going to slow him down to the point that he may have to move on. This may not necessarily be a viable option in a resident or a patient room, but think about your hallways where you have your fire doors. We can bring stuff out of a lot of different rooms out into the hallway and create that wall of obstruction on the fire doors, and instead of preventing him from getting in a specific room, we're now preventing him from getting into a specific wing of a floor or of a building. And again, guys, think outside the box. In our full-day training program, one of the concepts that we talk about, and you know, I, I, we're doing this midday at lunchtime, I apologize in advance, think about if you've got no, you know, last resort type material, some fecal matter on the door knob. Certainly got plenty of it to go around in your dirty utility rooms. Grab a soiled diaper. May even be in the manufacturing business at this point. Who knows? But even the bad guy is not going to want to stick his hand in that. That may be all it you had to work with. That may be all it took to get that bad guy to skip the room you're in and go to the next room. And I'm not wanting to wish bad on the people in the next room. Hopefully all of our people are trained in the same ways. And the bad guy is spending, instead of spending the time shooting at people, he's spending the time looking for them. And by then the police arrive and stop it. There's also a lot of products on the market now that can be used to, to be able to, to secure doors from the inside when you don't have locks on them. You can find these on Amazon. You can find them on eBay. You can do room security searches. You know, there's hundreds if not thousands of products out there now. The only thing to be very careful of is your uh, regulatory surveyors, your, your state people. I've talked to some that say we won't have a problem with it in today's society, knowing the risk that's out there, as long as the patients and the residents can't get to it and could secure themselves in a room and the caregivers could not get to them. But there's a lot of stuff out there. If you find something, talk to your surveyors, see how they feel about it. And the last part is takeout. This is the part I hope it never gets to. 
this is the part that healthcare professionals especially have the hardest part with. Because guys, when I talk about takeout, we're at the point now where it's kill or be killed. And healthcare professionals, we're not conditioned to be the aggressors. We're conditioned to be the caregivers. We take care of the victims. We don't create victims. But in a case like this, that all has to go out the window. We're in that room. The bad guy's coming in, and we know he's not coming in. We're not going to be able to talk him down. You cannot verbally de-escalate an active shooter. Please hear that message. You cannot verbally de-escalate this person. He's going to come in the room, and he's going to kill you. You have to stop him. You have to fight back. So you have to put together a plan of attack as you're in that room saying, what am I going to do if this person comes in? Well, the good news is you are surrounded in that room. And I don't know what room you're in, but you're surrounded by weapons of opportunity. You've got so many ordinary items that you could use. I'm sitting at my desk doing this webinar with you today. I've got letter openers. I've got staplers. I've got ballpoint pens. I've got laptop computers. I've got hot coffee. I've got so many things that I could use as a weapon to try to stop him long enough for me to physically attack him or to at least knock him down and run. So if you have to fight back, realize you've got to do it without hesitation and you've got to do it quickly. Pardon me. Now, when the police arrive, as I said, three to five minutes are going to be there. Realize when the police arrive, this is a critical situation for them as well. And I can tell you again, they're going to be dealing with the same anxiety that we've already talked about. Whatever the police tell you to do, just do it. And build this into your training. Make sure your people, I don't care if the police officer tells you to go lay in the mud puddle. Go lay in the mud puddle. We can ask why later. Right now, do what they tell you to do. Their focus is on protecting you and stopping the shooter. If you're leaving the building and the police are arriving, they don't know if you're a good guy or a bad guy. You know, the bad guy can very easily be dressed in scrubs, can very easily be dressed like an executive. There's no required wardrobe for the bad guy. So everybody that's coming out that door is a potential threat to that police officer. I want you running out of that building. I want your hands up high above your head. I want your fingers spread wide apart. And in the name of everything sacred, do not have anything in your hands that could be confused with a weapon under a stressful situation. Hands are up, hands are empty, fingers are spread wide. I don't want you pointing at the officers, shouting at the officers. Those of you in small towns, you may even know that police officer. You're going to be dealing with a side of them you don't know. You're going to be dealing with a side of them that is so focused that nothing else is even going through their minds right now. Don't try to run up to them. Don't try to hug them. Don't try to give them instructions. You know, that quote that you see in blue on your screen right there is actually one of my officers, a retired officer that works for us now. Panic-stricken person runs at an officer and attempts to grab hold. He or she is likely to get knocked on his or her butt or worse. And, you know, many said it so well right there. You don't know how that police officer is going to react. You come running out and you've got something in your hands, guys, don't take that chance. Realize police are going to use a technique that's called rapid response. If shots are being fired, the movement's going to be towards the gunfire. If shots are not being fired, police movement is going to allow a slow, methodical search until they identify and stop the shooter. They are not going to, first arriving police officers are not going to care for the casualties. Their job is to stop the shooter so that we can then get care teams in the building to care for the casualties. 
And the last part we have to talk about, uh, and I'm very sensitive to our time right now, is recovery. You have to have a recovery plan. Right? Just because the shooting has stopped and the shooter has been stopped, the real challenge is starting right now. Remember, this is a crime scene now. Your hospital, your nursing home, your physician's office, it's no longer a hospital, a nursing home, or a physician's office. It's now a crime scene. It belongs to the police. Business as usual is a long way off. You need to think about recovery. Think about all the different uh, elements that you're going to need to help get you back to a state of normal. Right? Recovery starts when the incident is over. Don't try to start recovery during a, a dynamic incident. It takes place after the event is over. But think about some of the things that you're going to need. And, and again, I apologize at lunchtime, but we're dealing with an active shooter event. We're going to have biohazards present, blood, body fluids, body tissues. We're going to need somebody to come in and do cleanup and restoration. Our employees, our patients, our residents, their families, all of the survivors just went through hell. They're going to need mental health counseling. You're going to have gapers, people coming by wanting to peek and see, the, see where it happened. You may need security. You may have looters to deal with. So you're going to need security, maybe armed or unarmed. You're going to have the media. They're going to be wanting a statement. And if you don't give them something to say, they'll make something up because they've got to make uh, their broadcast deadlines. They've got to make their publication deadlines. So you're going to need help with the media. And you certainly don't want to say the wrong thing and set yourself up for, for uh, additional liability issues. You're going to need defense counsel. I can almost guarantee you, you're going to have plaintiff's attorneys in your parking lot passing out business cards. So you, know, you need to pre-identify all these different resources that you're going to need for a recovery plan build a relationship with them, have a contractual agreement with them that says, look, if I call you at 3 in the morning because this has happened, I need you here and I need you here now. And they commit to you contractually that they will be there now. And we talk about, you know, for a caregiver, gosh, the, the, the most difficult, my safety versus my resident or my patient's safety. And very quickly, you know, these are the questions that's going through their minds. How do I protect my patients? How do I protect myself? When do I act? When do I react? And we use a decision-making model called the Safety Transition Adjustment Formula. And that is a balancing act between resident safety and employee safety. And when we're making that decision, do I take care of myself? Do I take care of my residents, patients? Guys, it's predicated on where the bad guy is at in the building. And as you're looking at this at your screen, start off at the top. You see the bad guy in the mask. Over on the left-hand side, we're asking, where is the bad guy? If he is distant, in other words, if he's in a different part of the building, my focus now can be on my patient safety, my resident safety. All right, I've got time to do all the things we talked about with the four outs, getting them out, hiding them out, setting up barricades, all that kind of stuff. But as you're facing your screen on the right-hand side, if the shooter is immediately proximal to you, you have to take care of yourself. You know, there's that old adage, who's going to rescue the rescuers? If something happens to you, Who's going to take care of them? And making the decision to take care of yourself is not a selfish decision. It can be a very heroic decision. You know, again, I go back to my travels and, and all the time I spend in airplanes. With that safety briefing I get every time I go on a flight, one of the things the flight attendant says is, while we don't anticipate a sudden change in cabin pressure, should one occur, four masks will drop down from the overhead ceiling. Put your mask on and then help anyone who needs help. For those of you traveling with children or husbands who act like children, 
please make sure to secure your mask before you secure anybody else's. Did you hear that message? Secure yours. Take care of yourself before you attempt to help anyone else. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of them. And that really is the message here. If the shooter is proximal to you, if the shooter is in your unit, in your wing, in your department, you have to take care of yourself in order to be able to take care of anyone else. Time of recognition is so critical. All of this starts to happen. That's why I said earlier, it's not somebody setting off fireworks. It's not somebody uh, car backfiring. It's not somebody slamming a phone book. If it sounds like gunfire, it is, because the sooner you recognize it, the sooner we can start to put all of this into practice. And we've already talked about all of these things. Wrapping up, guys, the rule of thumb, the bad guy is looking for targets of convenience and opportunity. We can't prevent it from happening. We have to focus on survival. He or she is moving from area to area. As I said, they're not going to take time to try to breach a locked door or push down a door that's barricaded. They know the police are coming. They know they got to move quickly, and they know they've got to do things. And, and, and here you go. Build this into your plan for each of your units, each of your departments, each of your wings. Where can I lock up my, my patients? Where can I lock up my residents? Where can I move my staff? Supply closets, med rooms, record rooms, bathrooms. These are rooms with locks on the doors. Move your patients, your residents in there as much as you can. Right? Now, we're just about out of time. Uh, Dr. Brooks, I will give it back to you. I don't know if we've got any questions or not. Uh, I, I kind of feel like we were racing a little bit. It's hard to do a good job in an hour but I hope we've given you enough. My contact information is up there on the screen for a reason. If you have questions uh, after the program's over, if you're working on your plan and have questions, give us a call. Uh, I tell everybody, we're not your attorney. You're not going to get a bill for a 15-minute phone call. We're, our, you know, our mission is, yeah, we're in business, but we're also, we want to make sure everybody goes home safe. So if we can help you over the phone or over an email, we're happy to do it. So Dr. Brooks, I will turn it back over to you. Well, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, we do have a few questions. Uh, one question, um, are locks on office medical doors that staff let patients uh, know to come through, are those locks effective? Or I'm assuming, do they need a stronger lock in addition to that? You know, if I've got a lock on the door, I'm going to use it. The efficacy of the lock isn't going to be known until the bad guy trader breaches it. Now, that being said, if I've also got a desk I can slide over in front of the door, uh, a Xerox machine, anything like that, the more I can do to protect myself, the better off I'm going to be. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, some of my staff have concealed carry permits and want to carry firearms at work. What are your thoughts on that? Ooh, well, we've got 50 different states with 50 different laws, first of all. Uh, some states, no, re no uh, restrictions. I'm domiciled in Illinois. I have a concealed carry permit in Illinois. Illinois clearly prohibits anybody from bringing a concealed firearm into any type of a healthcare occupancy. So first thing, you got to know what your law allows. Secondly, just because your staff member has a concealed carry permit doesn't mean they're qualified to carry that gun. I got my concealed carry permit a year ago. Since taking that concealed carry class, which in Illinois is a 16-hour class, I've shot my gun one time a total of four rounds. I am not qualified with a firearm in my hand. Even though I have that permit that says I can carry it, I don't carry it. Until I have time to get more practice and develop better competencies, 
you don't want me with a gun in your building, I promise you that, because I'll probably be shooting up every lamp and coat hanger around trying to hit a target. Just because a person has a concealed carry permit does not make them qualified, so I'm not a big fan of it. Okay, and what can we do about staff members going through divorces, et cetera, that may put everyone at risk? Great question. Every one of you should have, to be OSHA compliant, a written workplace violence prevention plan. I would encourage you to incorporate a subsegment in that plan that addresses domestic violence. Put together plans on what you can do to protect your employees. And you know, yeah, I want to protect that employee who is the victim of domestic abuse, but I also want to protect every other employee as well as my patients and residents. So it's not just about that one employee who is a victim of domestic violence. Put together a plan on how we can protect that person, but also what can we do to protect the other people. And it starts with good communication. We worked with one hospital in Virginia not too long ago that is actually, and I don't know if this is legal or not, I'm not an attorney, uh, but they have actually put now a plan in place that mandates that if any of their employees are the victims of domestic violence in the home, that they have to report it at work as a condition of continued employment. And they're doing that for the very simple fact that they want to make sure they can protect the employee as well as everyone else. And they've put together some really nice steps to do that. They uh, are provided special parking for that employee. They provide security escorts in and out of the building for that employee. They uh, get pictures of the abusive partner and they provide it to security and to the volunteers that staff the entrances. So if that person does come in, the volunteer or the security person recognizes them, can immediately call 911. And they're doing it with a great degree of discretion and confidentiality, which I really admire. So, you know, there are things that we can do. Uh, but it starts with having good communication, making sure your employees know that they can come to you with those sensitive issues and that you're going to uh, work to protect them and treat their privacy and their confidentiality as well. Okay, one last question. What is involved in recovery and what might we need? Well, we talked about it a little bit. Um, you need to identify all of those different resources that you're going to need. For example, you know, one of the first ones I think I mentioned was cleanup and restoration. If you have an event and you call the local uh, ABC cleanup company, you don't know that they're going to respond. You don't know that they've got the qualified staff to handle a biohazard situation. You don't have a clue what they're going to charge you or if they're going to take advantage of you and charge you an arm and a leg. Uh, and you don't know what you're going to get from them. But if you prearrange that relationship where you sit down with them and you identify uh, what your expectations would be, what your needs would be, what the legal requirements would be, you pre-negotiate costs and everything else, um, you can usually have very good resources that are then available at the, at the drop of a dime of a phone call. The other thing, too, is work with your insurance companies. A lot of insurance companies already have those relationships set up and pricing negotiated. And in most cases, your insurance company will pay for those costs because those are part of the actual incident itself. So, uh, you know, your insurance company can do a lot of it. Uh, your, your outside resources are, are valuable to you to sit down and work with them. Um, you know, and, and again, I probably go on and on, Doc, but uh, we're running out of time. I'm sensitive to that. 
Well, thank you, Steve, and um, this is just a wonderful presentation uh, for our attendees. Please join us again tomorrow for another educational webinar. Uh, this will be uh, at noon as well, uh, Avoiding Dr. Google with Jim Cucinata of Halo Health International. This will address patient satisfaction issues. If you can, re you can register for this webinar and also request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at 1STHDC.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Please use Steve's contact information on the screen for any additional questions. Uh, if you forward us questions, we will forward them on to him. And your PACOM CEU certificate will be emailed automatically from PACOM. Thank you so much and have a great day.